we welcome Floyd Wilson with us this morning in the pulpit and pray, Floyd, that the Lord would bless as you open the word to us. Thank you. Dear Lord, we have come to seek you and one of the ways is through listening to what your word, your spirit may have to teach us today. And so please remove the distractions from our minds and hearts that we will hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bible. hope you have brought your Bible, or if you didn't, I guess you'll have to use a few Bible, uh, to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. And we'll be jumping in toward the end of that chapter. So if you have it, I hope that you'll follow along as we go through these verses in Acts today. So after the Apostle Paul completed three missionary journeys, he believed the Lord wanted him to go to Jerusalem, despite other believers warning him repeatedly, there's trouble ahead if you do go. At Jerusalem, after Paul did go, of course, at Jerusalem, Jewish critics uh, accosted Paul as he was at the temple and accused him of defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile. The charge was absolutely false, but it managed to spark an angry mob against Paul. And so they dragged him out of the temple area and began to beat him. Roman soldiers rushed to the scene, determined to stop whatever, whoever appeared to be causing this disturbance, and they focused on Paul and took him away in chains. Now, being in Roman soldiers' custody seems like a bad thing, but on that, this occasion, when the people were intent on probably killing him, like they had Stephen, uh, maybe being arrested by the Romans is a good thing. And so that seems to be the case in this case. So once Paul was out of immediate danger, he asked permission to speak to the crowd. And when Paul got to the point where he stated that the Lord had called him to go as his representative to the Gentiles, his opponents were absolutely incensed. And the Roman commander had to bring Paul into the barracks for his protection. But then the commander decided to use the standard Roman method to interrogate somebody who was a prisoner. First you whip him severely, then you ask the questions. And that's what they were determined to do with Paul. And to prevent this abuse, Paul informed the commander that he was a Roman citizen by birth, Acts 22, verse 29. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him, with the whipping, withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. So now, that's the review of what we did the last time I, I preached. And we're ready to continue with Luke's account in Acts 22, verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So as Acts 23 opens, Paul is speaking 
to this inquiry that was organized by the Romans. Verse 1 of Acts 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Having a good conscience before God is just as essential for you and me as it was for Paul. What is God's evaluation of the things that you have already done? What is God's view of what you are presently involved in? And what does God think about what you and I are planning to do in the future? Our honest answers to those questions is much more important than what other people's opinions are of us. What God thinks and how he evaluates is the most important thing. So Paul's declaration that he had nothing to feel guilty about made the high priest so angry he ordered one of his assistants to punch Paul in the mouth. Acts 23, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words, you are a fraud. You should be upholding justice. Instead, you are violating the law. Now, I'm not sure uh, about exactly what was happening here, but the onlookers, they were sure. They said, you shouldn't be treating the high priest in such a way as you've just spoken. Now, I'm not sure what Paul meant by his explanation in verse 5. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, by, by that comment, was Paul saying, I couldn't see that it was the high priest. You know, like maybe he had eye problems or something. Didn't have his glasses. <laughs> you know, is that what he meant? Or was Paul implying that if he had truly been acting like a high priest should, then he would have given him the respect that was his due. So I, I don't know which way it was, or maybe it was a third way. But either, either way it was, Paul's response to the high priest maybe falls a tad short of the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Now, don't think I'm criticizing Paul. I, actually, I completely sympathize with him. If somebody is nasty toward me, I may not respond as graciously as Jesus would. Words that express my feelings come to my mind, and I'm probably going to blurt them out. You know? Now, does anybody else here have that problem? <laughs> okay. And maybe that's the explanation of why Paul did as he was. He was completely justified, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> we'll just leave that with the Lord. <laughs> But Paul was familiar with the religious politics at Jerusalem. There were Jewish factions that disagreed with each other on various subjects. And on this occasion, Paul shrewdly used these differences to divide his opponents. Acts 23, verses 6 through 10. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees 
and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Now when we are falsely accused, there may be statements or questions that we could make that would undermine the uh, attack that's being made against us. Like Paul, there may be opportunities for us to identify and exploit our opponent's disagreement with each other. Sometimes we can show that their arguments are contradictory or even illogical. For such defenses to succeed, we must say the right things at the right time. Now that's the trick. <laughs> the right things at the right time. And it may help us to do research on whatever the issues are, and that might help. But mainly, we need to be sensitive to the Lord's prompting. He can put thoughts in our minds and wise words in our mouths. And if God doesn't prompt us to say something, it probably would be better for us to just keep our mouths shut. <laughs> because more trouble will come from blurting out something that God doesn't want us to say. Well, let's go to verse 11, Acts 23. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, keep this in mind. Paul is under custody. He's He's a prisoner, basically, in the Roman barracks where the soldiers, that's their headquarters. And if they released Paul from his custody in the barracks, then there could very well be assassins waiting to kill him outside. Yet, in these dangerous circumstances, the Lord says to Paul, be of good cheer. <laughs> Look on the bright side. It's not all bad. You have faithfully witnessed for me in Jerusalem, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to witness in Rome. And you know what? For a long time, Paul had been hoping, and you see it in various letters, I'm hoping to come to Rome. I'm, I'm planning to come there. And now God is saying, you're going to get there. Only it's not going to be the way you thought. You're not going to buy the ticket. They're going to pay for your journey. You're going to be a prisoner. But anyway, you get what I mean? God wants to get them there, just slightly different way to do it. God may put goals in your mind and, and my mind and heart. 
we may even come up with various strategies for how we're going to accomplish these things and get to the goal. But the Lord may say, yes, I like the goal. I gave it to you, but here's another way that I'm going to get you there. And so that was the way with Paul. That could be the way with us. Let's read on. Acts 23, 12 through 15. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when the religious authorities failed to end Paul's ministry through making false accusations against him, other conspirators came to the forefront and said, we'll kill Paul. We won't even pretend to go through the law. We'll just totally go around the law. We'll just kill him on the way before he can get to the inquiry. Their plot might have worked if it wasn't for a brave boy. Verses 16 through 22. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Now this boy obviously cared about his uncle Paul. There may have been a risk involved in that boy even discovering the plot. I don't know whether he was hanging around some buildings, listening through the windows of some room. I don't know how he heard about it. But he heard about it. And it took for sure courage for a little boy to go to the Roman soldier's barracks and say, I'd like to come in and talk with Paul. <laughs> you know, I'm one of his visitors. <laughs> uh, how many little boys do you think would do that? This little boy was willing to do it for his Uncle Paul. Would you, as a child today, I guess there are a few here, would you be willing to do something that challenging. For the conspirators to succeed in killing Paul, 
Remember, the plan was when, when the Roman soldiers are taking him on the way to the council, we're going to attack and kill Paul. Now, that would mean that those 40 would have to kill some Roman soldiers on the way to get to Paul, right? Because they're, they're escorting him. And so the commander heard this warning of what was to happen from this little boy, and he was not a stupid commander. When he gets this information, he knows that not only Paul is in danger, but his own soldiers are in danger, and he's going to do something about it. Acts 23, 23 through 35. And he called two of his centurions, or no, and he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day, they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So the Roman commander made a good plan and he implemented it absolutely promptly that very night. His letter to Governor Felix uh, misrepresented when he had heard that Paul was a Roman citizen. Remember, he's, and in his letter, he's trying to make himself look good. He's not going to admit any, any legal faults. But the rest of the letter was quite accurate. So when a crisis hits us, there may be lots of time for us to consult with other people, do research, and make decisions about that crisis. But in other cases, the quicker we act, the better. Suppose we have a stovetop fire in our house. Now, we've never, I don't remember that we ever had one, but I've heard of people having them. You know, some, the grease, whatever. Next thing you know, you've got flames on your, on your stove. Well, the time to snuff it out is right away. You don't wait until the whole house is on fire and hope the fire department can put it out. You know, by that time, it's probably too late. You, you needed to make a decision and do something, put the lid on top of the pot right away. Okay? So that's what this commander did. He, he acted, and it helped Paul. So let's read on. 
Acts 24, verses 1 through 9. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great force or great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So just read between the lines here. I think I've got this right. The high priest Ananias and her fellow and his fellow elders were unwilling to speak themselves before the Roman governor Felix. They recruited a slick-talking order named Tertullus to speak on their behalf. Tertullus began by flattering Felix, the leader of the Roman occupation forces in Palestine. We're thankful for the peace and prosperity that you have brought to us. <laughs> you know, now maybe he made, I'm sure he made it sound very sincere, but some other Jews who may have been there and that were part of the subject population, they may have been practically bringing up at about that point. Okay, uh, but, but he's willing to flatter. He's willing to say anything to butter him up, to get him to make the, the decision that they want. So next, the orator accuses Paul, and he goes over all the same lies that were told back at Jerusalem. And Tertullus even had the nerve to accuse the Roman commander, who was still back at, at Jerusalem, to accuse him of obstructing the Jewish system of justice. Now, Governor Felix, Tertullus is saying, it should be obvious to you that Paul is guilty. Unlike Tertullus, we Christians must avoid attacking our opponent's character and misrepresenting their views. Yet, when our critics are truly wrong, we need to have the courage to say that they're wrong. So let's evaluate whether Paul, as he makes his defense now, is going to be gracious and yet firm. Verses, uh, Acts 24, verses 10 through 21. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as you know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. 
nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So, looking back at what Paul said, it indicates respect for Felix as he gets started on his defense. But he goes into saying, basically, they brought no evidence to support their accusations against me. None of those who were actually at the temple and saw me there are here. They're, they're not here to testify. And the religious leaders that who have come, they haven't said a word. Only this Tertullus has been speaking. So no evidence has been submitted backing up the allegations that I did anything wrong. And then Paul makes some positive affirmations. Yes, I do worship the God of my fathers. I do believe the scriptures. I try to maintain a clear conscience before God and people. And I certainly trust that there will be a resurrection of the dead someday. Perhaps my belief in the resurrection is the real reason why my opponents are accusing me. When people falsely accuse us, it provides an opportunity for us to testify about vital things. Paul affirmed in this opportunity that he belonged to the way. He belonged to the people who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How many here belong to the way? Okay, great. Are you and I willing to say, I belong to Jesus? He saved me. I've given my life to him. So that's my response to whatever you're trying to pressure me to do. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I belong to the way. I belong to those who believe he is the one and only Savior. Acts 24, verses 22 through 27. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So here, Felix admitted that he knew about the way, but he was not prepared to make a decision in Paul's case. He would delay proceedings until Lysias, the commander, came from Jerusalem, whenever that would be. In the meantime, though, Paul, you can have some visitors. Did you notice in Acts 24, verse 24, it reports that later on, after the occasion that we had, first occasion, first inquiry, uh, that Felix invited Paul in for various conversations, one in particular with him and his wife, Drusilla. On that occasion, Paul explained to this Roman and his Jewish wife, explained what it means to have faith in Christ. He talked with them explicitly about there was judgment coming in the future. This conversation made Felix afraid. He became so uncomfortable that he ended the conversation. Yet in future days, he invited Paul back for more talk. As it says here, hoping to get a bribe, pay money to me, and then I'll maybe let you go. But Paul wouldn't bribe him. So Paul's case remained stalled for two entire years. Felix delayed deciding about Paul's case. And he delayed deciding about Jesus. Two big delays. Are there important issues in your life on which you have delayed making decisions? If you truly need more information that only time will reveal that information, fine, maybe there's a reason not to have made the decision yet. But what if the real reason you haven't made the decision is that you are afraid to make the decision? That is a very good possibility, right? This may be happening with some here regarding following Jesus. You keep saying to yourself, I need more time to decide. I need more information. But the truth may very well be that you have been unwilling to give up living for self and you fear what other people will think if you do decide for Jesus. If that's the case, I invite you, yes, to count the cost, but then to decide, make the decision to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have learned some things from this narrative of the events that Paul experienced recorded in the book of Acts. And we can see various points in which we can identify with him and these experiences because we have some of them today. And we need to respond to them in the way that would honor you. But as we were just saying, the most important response to you is to trust in you personally and individually that Jesus came and lived among us and died and rose again to provide the opportunity 
for us to be forgiven of our sins and saved and adopted into your family. And so, Lord, if there's someone here who has not made this vital, vital decision, please may that person do so today and have the courage to tell some of us about that commitment so that we can encourage him or her in following through and growing in their new faith in Christ. And so thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we have as believers to live for you in this day in which you have placed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.